How are you doing today? Good, yeah. Uh, you're looking good. Better than usual, and that's a compliment. You, you, you always look good, even better than usual. Yeah. Thanks for being here today. You uh, had other options and things you could have done, and you decided to reinforce your habit of regular weekly gathering to worship. And if you have kids, good for you. You're helping your kids establish that same great habit. My name's Jared. Uh, for those of us that are meeting for the first time, I'm one of the pastors, my wife Anne, who spoke last week, for those of you that were here, is at uh, New Hope in Salem, our sister, one of our sister churches in Salem. And those of you that have been around for a while remember uh, Isaac Hovitt, who was on staff here and five years ago, we sent out to pastor in Cottage Grove. Now he's coming to New Hope as the lead pastor in Salem. And uh, Isaac won't be there until the 1st of October, but he asked for permission during their interim time to... Uh, arrange guest speakers for the month of September. Well, that was easy for somebody. And so I was there last week, Anne's there this week, Rick's there next week, Elizabeth is there the following week. I, I think uh, you're going to see fewer pastors around here. And uh, I don't know if Isaac is smart or dumb uh, for doing that, frankly. It could work either way. So uh, maybe we should all pray for them at New Hope, and Anne will be back with us tomorrow. Well, uh, I'm, I'm old. Yeah, oh, I am. Yeah. I know that you think I'm young. You're very kind. But, but I may have limited political seasons in my future to get a few things off my chest. So for the first time in my 60 years of life, I'm actually giving a talk in church on Sunday about politics. Yeah. And uh, the last service agreed that we were going to make this an anniversary and that uh, in 60 more years, we're all going to reconvene and I'm going to give it... A, an update on what I've learned in the most recent 60 years about that, but who knows? We'll see how this thing flies. You're brave, you're bold, you're here. And, and actually today is a confession. It started three and a half months ago in June. I got up too early, looked at Facebook too soon, read one of you say something that evoked irritation in me. I was on my way toward nurturing that toward some anger and maybe even full-blown rage, who knows? And it dawned on me, I'm six months from the election. I cannot handle this. So I unfriended you. <laughs> there are options, you know. Block, unfriend, and then I thought, maybe there's a slightly more mature adult and Christian way to handle the next six months of the political season than uh, blocking all of my friends. And that day I began a journey, which was intended to be for me to behave. So what you're going to get today is a story of Jared's behavior modification and improvement summer scenario. And uh, I'm, basically, I'm just telling you, if you think I'm bad, I could be a lot worse. That, that's what I want you to know today. And maybe as you go along with me on this journey, you'll find some uh, thoughtful and some helpful things along the way. The message for this uh, came out of an experience I had a few years ago. The title of the talk today is How to Act Christian in Politics. And it came a few years ago when I was at a meeting of um, what were self-called and approved by others, Christian leaders. And these leaders were together for two days of meetings. Now, did I just say something that was incompatible? Leaders in meetings for two days? They turned snarky, is how they turned. So they wanted to go home. It was in the afternoon. We were tired of hearing other people talk, and, our, and we were wearing thin, and we were sitting around tables, and, and we were starting to get snippy at each other, kind of misbehaving. 
And I was sitting with one of my good friends, brilliant guy, his name is Daniel. One of the reasons I love Daniel is that he has my kind of humor. This is a confession. This isn't admirable. He's sarcastic. It was delicious. <laughs> he leaned over during one public snip up there and he said to me, do you think we should tell them that it's okay to act Christian? <laughs> yeah. So... That came to mind when I was having my June early uh, experience, and I thought, would it be okay if I acted Christian for the next six months? And would it be okay if we as a congregation actually found our way toward acting Christian through the season, and what would that look like for me? So this is the deal. This talk is in four quarters. It's a good football game, but it's not as long as those are, really. First quarter, I'm going to tell you something we agree on. Second quarter, a second thing we agree on. Third quarter, something that a lot of things we probably don't agree on. And the fourth quarter, what I have been doing, not as a pattern for you, but as an example or an illustration of a pathway for the next 50 days or so that you might want to consider walking down. So are you ready to jump in with me first quarter? Several of you are, and the others of you are stuck. So here we go. Number one. Here is our big idea today. If you don't have one of these handouts, please raise your hand. Ushers are coming. Uh, even if you're not note-taker, that's not the point. On the back side, there's a, a model for you that you may find helpful, and I'd like for you to be able to take that home with you. You can also follow along, which gives you some hope that I may actually finish this thing. So here we go. The big idea, would you notice it with me? As followers of Jesus, we strive for unity in the Spirit while we live out faith in diverse ways. It's unity without uniformity. And here's our verse. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit until we all reach the unity of the faith. Now, I should have three little dots in the middle of that sentence because actually I have taken the first phrase in Ephesians 4 and the last phrase of the end of that idea, which is verse 13, and I have given you an executive summary of the bread pieces with the meat of the sandwich in the middle. The bread starts by saying, we are going to work hard. We're going to sweat this will be the most rigorous daily doubles you've ever done. Bad news, Shane, you finished a triathlon yesterday. You'll sweat even more doing this. This is the hardest work Christians do. You will make every effort every day to keep the unity of the Spirit. And here's why. As he begins to unpack the idea, he says, because first of all, we are completely unified. We're unified because we have one Lord and one faith and one baptism and one body and one head. Trust me, we're unified. But here's the Christian paradox. We are also, by God's design, utterly not uniform. There are different kinds of gifts and perspectives and insights, and all of us bring our unique contributions together, and the result is in love that we all grow up and we become this corporate community that is more mature and more like Jesus because of our unique perspectives and contributions. That is a paradox. Unified but not uniform, having to celebrate both, and we're better because of both. So the job that we have, the task, the question, is how do we live out being unified and how do we strive to maintain that unity in, uh, in the complexity and in the individual 
uh, what each of us bring. So first quarter, here we go. Number one, evergreeners agree. We agree that we pray, thank, think, and do. Now, there's a lot of foundational scriptures that different churches come to, but this is an evergreen foundation. This shapes some of our, our community culture together. And you, you know the passage in Ephesians 4. I'll read it starting with verse 6 that forms that belief for us. It says, don't be anxious for anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. So our orientation toward life in following Jesus is that we have a similar process. Life smashes us in the face, and we pray, we thank, we think, and then we do stuff. Do evergreeners do stuff? Yes. Do they post? Do they tweet? Do they write? Do they call? Do they text? Do they converse? Yes. Do they advocate? Do they express their opinion? Of course we do stuff. But we do stuff after we have prayed, thanked, are thoughtful, and then we do. I'm not going to talk more about that. I've just finished the first quarter. Does anyone say? <laughs> People are so pleased when I finish a point. So we are going to rush on. But let me tell you, I, I did I developed this in a whole talk earlier this spring. You'll find it at ecc4.org. Go to weekends, go to teachings, and, uh, and I have fleshed this out uh, more fully. The second thing we all agree on, second quarter, here we go. Evergreeners agree that we pray for leaders with thanks. We agree on that. And we do that because the Bible is very clear in its instruction. Notice in 1 Timothy chapter 2, it says, I quote, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. How many people? All people. All six billion? Yes. Who's responsible to do that? You. How do you do that? Undoubtedly better than I do, right? I'm not very good at it. This is my, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven prayer. We pray for all, and then we go secondly to a very specific subset of the six billion people in the world. He then gives us verse 2, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. And this is good. And it pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, again, I'm going to be fairly brief here because the next 50 days or so, or 60, as we move toward the election, we're actually going to engage as a community in praying together. In fact, on the 25th, we're going to launch 40 days of prayer and fasting. On that Sunday, it'll start a couple of days later. And the 40 days leading up to the national election, we're actually going to be as a church engaged in prayer and fasting. We're going to be talking about how you can participate in that. We're going to have some prayer guides and some ideas that will be helpful for all of us to be in agreement together. But the point today is not how to do it. The point today is why we do that. 
we are to engage first in praying for those leaders with thanks. Now, when I ask the question of myself, because this is just my story of how I got to today, it was, what happens when I pray for those leaders? The why piece. I don't even know how to pray for civil and political leaders. If I know the why, maybe it'll help me in the how. And you know a really good place to go when you have questions like that? The Bible. It's, it's an awesome source of information. And so I stayed right in this passage for just a moment. In fact, you can put that passage back up in 1 Timothy 2. And I went all the way out to the end. That's the ultimate goal. And here's the deal. We're doing this stuff so that God's perfect mission will be accomplished. He wants all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's God's mission on earth. Whatever he calls you to do is a movement toward that mission. That's the ultimate. God wants everybody to be saved. The penultimate, it's what the thing before the ultimate is called. The penultimate state is if we do this thing he's told us to, that it increases the likelihood that we will live quiet and peaceful lives. How many of you vote for that? Yeah. Quiet and peaceful lives so that we can live out godliness Godliness is the imago Dei in us, the likeness and image of God in us, the fullness of his spirit and transformation within us, that we actually think and live out acting like God. Quiet and peaceful lives in which we are living out God's likeness in us in holiness. Holiness, a word which describes the complete deal, and we often apply it to God. The holiness of God, 360, it's the reflection of his perfect character. It's God's total integrity and health. In the English language, we often put a W in front of the H, whole. It means the same thing to us, complete and absolute. Healthy comes from this wholeness. God wants you to live out a life that looks and sounds like Jesus, godliness, in all holiness, from a place of God's health and wholeness in you. Why? So that other people are more likely to hear the gospel and be saved. In other words, Christians that aren't hypocrites make better ambassadors for Christ and are more enthusiastic carriers of his message and are more credible than hypocrites. That's what it says, right? Now, the mission is people being saved. The penultimate is you living a quiet and peaceful life in godliness and holiness. And here's the deal. That's the state that the Prince of Peace would love to be on planet Earth. That's what God wants in Syria. A most fractured, horrifically, tragically broken nation in this world over the last five years or so. Conflict so intense, it's extremely difficult for well-meaning world leaders to figure out a pathway forward. You know what God's will is in Syria, that they could live a quiet and peaceful life where Christians would be able to live expressing godliness and holiness so others could be saved and come to know the truth. That's God's will. Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And now I pray for leaders, civil authorities and others, and I pray for your grace in their lives in, way, in, in ways that will allow us to live life in a quiet and peaceable way so that the gospel can be advanced. 
That gives purpose to your prayer for leaders. Now notice that he doesn't tell us to pray about the leaders. It's not a suggestion to pray complaints. By the way, if you want to do the wrong thing and pray complaints for leaders, just chat with me. I have journals filled with uh, ideas for you there. Now, it doesn't say to pray complaints against leaders. It doesn't say to pray against leaders. It says to pray for leaders. And then we move from the praying for leaders with thanksgiving to God. Well, let me tell you, before halftime here, and you're going to have a special halftime presentation, I kid you not, why I think this is so powerful. It just dawned on me recently. I pray for a leader not because of who they are and not because of how I think about them. Whether I like them as a person, whether I agree with their policies, whether I agree with decisions that they've made, I pray for them because of a position they hold, and I pray for them because my prayer is, get ready, worship to God. When I pray for a leader, when you pray for a leader, you are saying this about God. You are supreme. You are the one I appeal to. You are the prince of peace. You are the king over kings. You are the lord over lords. You are the one who is the savior of this world. When I pray for a leader, I make them subordinate to God in worship. And I say, God, I come to you first And I pray for these leaders so that you will somehow work with and through them to create a social environment of peace and quietness for the gospel to thrive and flourish in. And then when I give thanks, oh, the Bible doesn't say give thanks for everything. It says in everything, give thanks. There's evil in the world. There's horrible decisions in the world. There's malevolent leaders in the world. We don't give thanks for them. Paul didn't give thanks for them. We give thanks not for, but in everything we give thanks. And in the in everything, when we have prayed, we now thank God again in worship that he is the supreme king and Lord over all. We come in worship to him. Well, that's theology. And you can say, well, uh, that may or may not be interesting, Jared, but how does that work? Well, for me, not that well, honestly. I'm not that good at this stuff. Most of my life, I have not prayed for civil and political leaders very well. I'm learning how to, how to do that. But I, you know, I, I, I kind of like to learn stuff. And so I did some history and asked the question, what was the political environment like when Paul was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write these words to his mentee, Timothy? Uh, there were uh, apparently five different Roman emperors during Paul's growing up and adult years. Of the five, four of them lived such horrific lives that I not only edited down brief statements to a statement or two about each of them, but, but some of the folks in the first two services have suggested that I give you less information than I did them because the point is so well made, just about one. Just, I'm, I'm going to do that in respect for you. My, my point is not to make you physically ill today, but it's to give you some sense of the political environment in which Paul was writing. Uh, let's just jump to the, the fifth, the last. Uh, his name was Nero. He was the emperor when Paul wrote First Timothy. He's the guy Paul was thinking about when he penned these words. Historians describe Nero as extensively torturing and executing Christians. He had many arrested, impaled on stakes while still alive, 
lit on fire and burned to death as torches to light his garden as he hosted banquets for his friends every evening. Sex with his mother, married to men and women, but most grotesquely having a full royal wedding as he married a man after castrating him. I won't bother you with the other four, but I will tell you that that's the only kind of political leader Paul experienced in his entire lifetime. And as he's inspired to write this holy scripture, not only for Timothy and the church at Ephesus, but for us, he did not, he did not call out the horrific, evil behavior of the leaders, but he called forth from the church, the physical representation of Christ on earth, a pathway forward that would invite God's intervention to come on a broken planet and to intervene in ways. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so it's in that setting where when I take a look at candidates and I'm not always entirely impressed with folks that are going to be, all the folks that are going to be on the ballot here in a few days from now, I think probably most of us would agree that we have better choices than Paul did back in his day. And that was an important discovery for me because my life can be very shallow in making relative decisions about relative to other things I've experienced. And to see the environment in which Paul wrote was very, very helpful for me. Notice, he didn't give thanks for their sinful actions. He invited God's intervention. We pray for leaders in worship to God, and we thank God in worship that he is the king of kings. And we continue to pray, and we continue to give thanks because worship is a prayer, is a worship of expression to God. That is the end of the second quarter. Halftime, often at halftime, people go uh, tailgate. You don't get to do that. Uh, we're going we're gonna to do that uh, at the end of the talk out in the lobby. But uh, I did ask Rick and Katarina uh, Sawchuk to come because uh, they do a really cool thing in their family that was just so helpful for me. And uh, would you get your hands free and give them a really warm applause and welcome as they come. Each night before bed, Elizabeth and I uh, gather with the kids to pray, kind of our tradition that extended from my parents to do nightly prayers before bed. Uh, and when the kids were preschool age, we would just kind of pray over them, just kind of pray our thoughts and our reflections for the day, uh, and they would listen in. And as they got older, we would invite them to pray with us and pray for us. And uh, we found that they would mimic what we prayed for, and we weren't all that pleased with how selfish we were. They prayed as selfish as we had. And so we begin to rethink some of the things we did in prayer and looked at some of the things like we talk about today, about praying for others, uh, in addition to thanking God, asking for our needs, but extending prayers towards around the world and such. Um, so we share with our kids that the Bible expects us to give thanks for blessings, ask them for things we need, and encourage us to pray for our leaders and situations around the world. And as they've asked for questions about uh, political candidates in this season, we reminded of the two things we can do, pray and vote. Um, and so we've been modeling that, and that's been a, a practice for quite a while now. 
this past summer, we had the privilege of going on a, a vacation trip to Washington, D.C., and on that trip, we had a privilege of going to the White House uh, and take a tour, which was kind of fun for us to walk through the, the halls of, where, of power and so forth. And talking to one of the Secret Service officers, I, I said, is the president's home? Because I know he's in town. He said, unofficially, he's home. And in Donovan, we were talking, and I felt like God said, Can, would you pray for your president? You prayed from your house. Would you pray for him in his house? Inviting my blessing and my wisdom while you're in his home. I thought, oh, that's kind of cool. So we took a few moments to pray, asking God for the various things we prayed for according to Scripture. And it was interesting, as we returned home, our kids were more enthusiastic about praying for our president, Michelle Obama, and their daughters, and who the, the future president would be as a result of that. And so this morning I asked if Katrina would pray, uh, similar to what she prays each night, uh, along these lines. And so I invite you, if you bow your head as she prays. Dear Jesus, thank you for this wonderful day, and thank you for my family, and thank you that I got to have a great first week of school. I ask that you'd help me do well on my speech, that homework, and that I have, um, that I am a good friend to others. I pray that you bless my grandparents, aunts, and uncles with good health, and help me have a fun day tomorrow. I also pray for my pastors and leaders today at church that you guide them with wisdom as they teach the lesson for today. I pray for sp- our sponsored children in Guatemala, Katarina, Alexander, and Francisco, that you give them the ed- good education and nourishment that they need. I also pray for our Mayor Willie, Governor Brown, and President Barack Obama. Um, I pray that you bless their families with strength and give them wisdom, and that um, you help them lead well and solve problems, and speak to them and guide them. In Jesus' name, amen. Third quarter. This is what you really came for. What are we not going to agree on? Did you know that we're not going to agree on everything? But what is okay to not agree on, and what should we agree on? Isn't that where the rub is? So the third thing we believe is that Evergreeners don't agree about many things, including candidates and issues. That's not news to you. Uh, If you're uh, Facebook friends, uh, as I am with uh, many others here, uh, it only takes a quick scroll through to discover that we are rather diverse when it comes to a variety of our opinions. So I, I'd like to approach answering a couple of questions. First, how can we make sense of being unified in the Spirit without being uniform in how we're living out our faith? How can we live at peace while holding different social and political priorities and positions? Once again, we have this great verse in Ephesians chapter 4. Notice verse 2 with me. Be completely humble and gentle, patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace until we all reach the unity of the faith. How do we keep the unity of the Spirit until we all reach the unity of the faith? By the way, any ideas on when we're going to all reach the unity of the faith? There's two options. Yeah, when we're all dead and go to heaven. Or if you're the last person on the planet. If I'm the last person on the planet, I'll still be disagreeing with myself. So that still won't be there. But folks, this is a way of life for us. 
So, I'll tell you what. Um, I don't like this verse very much. Had God consulted me, I would have given him something far more American male macho to do. There would have been more bluster and fight and volume. There would have been more physical energy. There would have been more arm twisting. There would have been more vocal persuasion. There would have been a lot more noise and dust than the three ways he gave us to fight for unity. Do you notice the three wimpy words that are there? Humble. And in case you missed it, he qualified it. Completely humble. (laughs) Gentle and be patient. When I'm told to fight for something with all I've got, I don't expect to fight with three weapons called humility, gentleness, and patience. But those are the three tools that God has given us to fight the fight for unity. So I ask the question, how do I express myself, a person of conviction, as I hope you are, when it comes to political policies, issues, and candidates, in a way that expresses humility, gentleness, and patience? And I didn't have a good answer until I got an email a few days ago from a friend in Springfield. His name is Greg. He was a politician. I've known him for many years. I have high regard for him. He attends one of our sister churches, Springfield Faith Center, and this was his email. I did an audit as I read it. I'll invite you to do the same. Was it humble? Was it gentle? Was it patient? Dear friends, many of you know I used to hold elective office And I have a deep interest in and serious thoughts regarding good governance. Because of this, I'm often asked who I'm supporting for president. And after watching the primary season unfold, I'm voting for the Johnson-Weld ticket. Please do yourself a favor and watch this two-minute video clip. Please consider voting for and supporting these two highly qualified and reasonable people. Thank you so much for your time and consideration. Was it humble? Because I'm often asked by my friends who to vote for, I thought I'd share that with you. Was it gentle? Please, please. Was, Was it patient? Thanks so much for your time and consideration. Didn't ask for a response. Now, honestly, my focus has been around the two candidates, uh, presidential candidates of the two major parties, uh, Johnson Well ticket, uh, Libertarian ticket, I hadn't given much attention to, uh, nor had I at that point, um, Jill Stein of the Green Party. And, and when I read this for my friend Greg, I was drawn into it. And I was drawn into it in a way that said, I'll take the two minutes to look at the clip. And I watched the clip and I said, I should probably become a little bit better informed about Johnson and Weld, and so I did that. I don't know that it's going to have influence on an ultimate decision, but I found myself drawn into something, and today I feel more unified with Greg, even though we could possibly, if not likely, end up voting for someone differently. I didn't have a good illustration for my own life, so I gave you Greg's, but I admire my friend, and he modeled the way for me about how maybe that can be worked out. So how is it that we keep this unity of the Spirit? Now, when Paul was writing to people who lived in Nero's Rome, he had some things to say about how to get along while having lots of disagreements. 
This is on the edge of being crude. It's not the purpose. I want you to remember who he's writing to. These are Christians who, if they took an evening stroll in downtown Rome, would have heard the screams and smelled the flesh burning of fellow Christians who were lighting as torches Nero's banquet that night. And to those people, Paul writes what we call the book of Romans. And in the first 13 chapters, he describes what we agree on. As people of faith in Christ, we had better agree on a bunch of important things. And the first 13 chapters, he describes that. There's no dispute about those things in his mind. We agree on those things. And in chapter 14, he flips the coin to describe and discuss the things that we don't agree on. And he calls them disputable matters. I want you to notice there on your handout an executive summary that I've provided of Romans 14. And I warn you about that because while I I I hope I didn't do damage to the whole chapter. I didn't want to take time to read the whole chapter. Part of your homework is to go home today or this evening, read the whole chapter. Some of you will want to read chapter 14 of Romans every day this week and just settle into it and see what God has to speak to you out of it. Let's read it, uh, start together. It says, accept the one whose faith is weak. Pause for a minute. What's the verb that we're given to do? What's the action? Say it with me. Accept. Does it say accept a person's political point of view, accept a person's candidate selection, accept, no, it says accept a person. Isn't it difficult sometimes to accept the person and we're concerned that we're endorsing their position or that we're endorsing their action or that we are acquiescing to their, their decision? This is what Paul's dealing with. He's dealing with the, tr- the problem we have of acceptance without endorsement. And he's just saying to the church, I want you to agree together that you're going to respect others by accepting them while you may be very much in disagreement about, his phrase is, disputable matters. Isn't the rub what is a disputable matter? Isn't that the problem? You see, the way I have it figured out, I have strong faith. That means I have opinions about everything. And I feel deeply about them and their convictions. And by the way, I hope you do too. Guess who has weak faith from my point of view? Just venture a guess. Anyone who, yeah, disagrees with me. Yeah, that's what that is. That's what that says. Yeah, because he doesn't resolve these disputable matters. He just knows that we all think we have strong faith. In other words, we think we're right. We wouldn't have the conviction if we didn't think we're right. He acknowledges that. So everybody who thinks you're right about what it means to follow Jesus, then from that position, all of these other weak faith people around you, accept them. And in these disputable matters, we'll go on, without quarreling over disputable matters, you then, why do you judge your brother or your sister? Why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. So therefore, let's stop passing judgment on one another. Let's make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. How do you like verse 22? I don't like it at all. Just thought I'd let you know, if God would have consulted me before inspiring Holy Scripture, verse 22 wouldn't have made it in. 
And because I don't like it so much, I'm memorizing that. It's my scripture memory verse for the week, and I encourage you to join me in that. It would serve some of you well too, potentially. In fact, I'm going to ask you to read it out loud boldly with me twice, would you? Together, starting with the word so. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Some of you didn't read it. This is your opportunity to get in on declaring truth. Together, so whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. I still don't like that. So what's he saying? In the middle of chapter 14, toward the end, we didn't read it, he says, you'd better have deep convictions because whatever is not of faith is sin. If you're going to vote for Mr. Trump, you'd better vote by faith. If you're going to vote for Ms. Clinton, you'd better vote by faith. Don't tell me God told you to vote for one or the other. That's my business to figure out between me and God. But you'd better have conviction. However you vote on the measure, which has to do with, is it Measure 97 here in Oregon, about uh, significant taxes on the largest corporations, you'd better come to an informed place of faith about it. Whatever is not a faith is sin. Probably not post God told you to vote that way. That's going to really mess with some other folks that hear something differently. But the point is, we need to have deep, strong convictions. Don't be spineless when it approaches this political season. But then he says about those strong convictions in disputable matters, so whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Now, does that mean that we can't express ourselves? Of course not. But you notice that he only gave us two options in the first verse. We're either going to accept each other in respect or we're going to quarrel with each other. So he says, err on the side of respecting each other. Hmm. So some examples of disputable matters, because that's where the rub is. What's not disputable, what is. In the context for these Romans 2,000 years ago, they were quarreling about whether to be vegetarian or carnivore. Not much debate in this church, is there? They were they were quarreling about whether or not they should meet on Saturday or whether they should meet on Sunday for worship or some other day of the week. Now, let me ask you the question, these people of faith, were those important things? Were those important matters? Absolutely. They were coming biblically and out of the life of the Spirit in them as a congregation trying to figure out the right thing. Do you think God cares about those matters? I think so. Are they disputable matters? By Paul's definition, yes strive, fight to maintain the unity of the Spirit until we all come to the unity of the faith. Disputable matters. What would disputable matters look like in Evergreen in 2016? Well, a couple of things come to mind. Maybe parenting styles. What do your kids get to do and read and see and listen to versus them? Where do your kids go? How about the choices other parents make about having their kids in uh, league team or other kinds of ventures that require that families not be a part of regular weekend Sunday worship for a period of time? What do you think about recreation? Any poker players here? I'm serious. You play? Would you teach me how to play? I'm interested. Yeah. I grew up with no cards. I, I try to play pinochle and everyone wants to not be my partner. Right? <laughs> So I don't know how to play poker. It kind of sounds fun. How about poker with money? How about poker with money with cigars? 
How about poker with money with cigars with whiskey? How about the use of alcohol? And how? And if so, when? And what kinds? Or how about vacation destinations? When you, she, when you heard she went to Vegas and went to shows, were you jealous or judgmental? Yeah. That was a funny line right there. Yeah. Am I getting a little heavy and serious here? Meddling a little too far? Yeah. Disputable matters, aren't they? So Paul says to us, and by the way, I think this applies to political candidates and measures and policies as well. Let's summarize the three quarters. We pray, thank, think, and do. We pray especially for leaders with the giving of thanks to God. And we understand that there's lots of things we disagree about, and they're not unimportant things. There are some things that we should hold deep convictions about. End of quarter three. Any enthusiasm generated about that? Yeah. That wasn't even a golf clap. So in the fourth and final quarter today, I, I want to share with you my journey. I need to give you some disclaimers. Please listen carefully and please believe me. Many of you, probably most of you, will not find any of my ideas here directly helpful. What I hope to do is to be honest in sharing with you how I have tried to walk a biblical spirit-led path to help me be a nicer person and express being Christian during this season, to be a nicer husband to live with, to be in a four-generation family uh, in a house in Sun River for a week this summer, and to treat people in my own family with respect, and hopefully to be a better friend and pastor for you. So it's my own pathway. But here's the deal. If you don't like my pathway, would you create this week one that's equally biblical that works better for you? Because no one gets to slide and be a lazy Christian in this matter, but all of us may have a very different approach to how we take it. On the back side of your handout, there is what I call the Evergreen Way. By the way, the Evergreen Way just is a reiteration, I won't do it now, of pray, thank, think, do, and six qualifiers of words that come right out of the Bible that help us decide which thoughts that come into our mind when we're listening to or reading news or having conversation or looking at posts or reading tweets, which thoughts come into our mind that we're going to allow to, to germinate and take root and have fruit. And the Bible says what you want to do is you want to sort those thoughts through a grid. And if they are not true, noble, right, pure, lovely, or admirable, just kick them out and let the birds eat the seeds. So that's how we discipline the thinking. But the, the, the last two-thirds where it says a way to decide how to vote is just Jared's path. I'll be brief, but let me leave you with it. It's been helpful for me. Be thoughtful about how you are approaching it. For me, voting is a hiring decision. And when I make a hiring decision, I always start with the person first. So that gives you a clue about what might be important for me is that I try to participate in hiring our next group of leaders or rehiring them because I start with the person first. And I look at qualities that are particularly important for me about that person, and that's where I begin. So I've listed here, if, if you started with leadership qualities, you would have different ones and you would state them differently. I'm not suggesting these for you. But to let you know my starting point. Are there different legitimate starting points? Absolutely. 
I've tried several of them on for size. When I was a junior in high school, my best friend and I drove from Sweet Home to Portland. We went to the headquarters in Oregon of one of the presidential candidates. We went in and we said, we want to be your advocates in Sweet Home. And they were excited. Nobody from Sweet Home had been there yet. Then they found out we were juniors in high school. They wanted to blow us off. And we said, no, has anybody else come? You have any better candidates than us? We'll do a good job for you. All that to let you know that I'm politically involved. You don't know that after seven years. Ann and I give money to causes and to candidates. I am very informed. I read a bunch. I read stuff. I won't tell you what I read each day because it would bother everyone in this room, right or left, because I go too far right and I go too far left for anyone in the room. I want to be well informed. This summer, I read several books about American history over our last 400 years because my belief was we didn't get here in our current political environment in a bubble. We got here bearing the fruit of 400 years of an experiment together in our nation. I want to be well informed. So earlier in my life, I, uh, I had either a D or an R after my name, and I, poted, I voted the, the party line. And I say that to be respectful for those of you here today that have chosen to affiliate with a major party and you, po- you vote the party line. That is an entirely legitimate way for a Christian to vote. What you would do is you'd say, I don't vote for the qualities of the person. I vote for a variety of other well-intended and rational reasons for a party ticket. Yours is different than mine, but you're thoughtful about that. In a moment, we're going to get to issues. In fact, uh, let's move to those uh, uh, ethical issues now. Uh, For me, policies come out of ethics, and so this is how I've been thoughtful about ethical issues. For example, the first one there is sanctity of life. I'm interested in the pre-born and the post-born. Which category are all of you in? Post-born, yeah. Don't you, aren't you happy to know that I care about sanctity of life for the post-born? Yeah. So there was a, a season in my life that I was a one-issue voter. I was an abortion issue voter. I was a pro-life voter. So I've been a party ticket voter. That's what I would start with. I've been a single issue voter. And by the way, I am proud and pleased of both. I have no regrets about that. Currently, I take a different way. As an unaffiliated uh, registered voter, I take a different approach. And my approach now is to ask leadership quality issues about the individuals and then to look at some ethical things that are important to me. So when I, uh, uh, I mentioned a scale of one to three, uh, Everything under leadership qualities to me is important, but not all of them are equally important. I need to weight them. So what I've done, this is a game. By the way, I'm a geek. You know that, don't you? I'm just an information geek, and now the professor is out, and that's even a slam against other professors that are here in the room. Here I am. This is what I've done. They're all important to me, but not all of them are very important, and not all of them are very, very important. Very, very important ones get a three, because I want to weight it. And I restrict myself to only three threes. And if it's very important, it's a two. And I only get two twos. And if it's important, but not very, very important, it gets a one. And then what I've done is I've just weighted them, and then I've just taken the two political candidates, Mr. Trump and Ms. Clinton, and one of these. This is a fun game. You might enjoy it. It's fun for me. I just sit down, and I put either a T or a C 
by the quality that, to this point in time, I think the one represents better than the other one. Now, what, it's, what I've discovered is that I don't know either of them well enough to make an assessment in some of these. By the way, the first one on my list, honesty and integrity, I am carrying a question mark. Now, don't try to fix me, please. I just, the first service, a lot of fixing was going on after the first service, and, and I'm not better for it. And I'm having fun, and I still have 50-some days at this, so please let me have my fun. But what it does for me, it lets me know that I need to give attention to becoming educated about these candidates so that at some point I can make a reasonably well-informed decision about which one I think demonstrates more of a life of integrity and more of a life of honesty. I have a question mark. But many of them I don't have a question mark. And then I get down to the bottom of my 21 and I add them up and I see where I have. See how geeky I am? That's a crazy way, isn't it? Here we go. I didn't write any policy issues, and I did that for two reasons. The first of all, those policy issues should flow right out of your ethics, in my opinion, and secondly, because if I got that specific, you would begin to have some hints about where I might be going, and I'm just not interested in this conversation today to lead any of us down those speculative paths. So here's the deal. Sanctity of life, the preborn and the postborn. What kind of policies are of interest to me because I believe that every human is a unique creation of God at the point of conception. I appreciate medical language. I do. I, I'm an I'm a, I'm a avocational student of the brain, and I enjoy medicine. I have no difficulty with titles like zygote um, and fetus. I have no difficulty. Medical, clinical sense. My philosophy of life and worldview is that these these creatures are babies from fertilization and the division of the first cell. So that position that I have about sanctity of life draws me towards some policies then regarding, regarding abortion, regarding pro-life, regarding pro-choice, and a larger issue around uh, reproductive rights for women that I'm very interested in. I'm also interested in the sanctity of life for the people who are postborn. I'm, I'm rather thoughtful about the death penalty, about preemptive war, about Second Amendment issues, and about end-of-life issues, because it's all sanctity of life for me. And by the way, what I've just done might have, a little bit of blood pressure might have just gone up. Can I say it's tough to find for me a candidate that lives out with policy the sanctity of life issues that are very important to me. Also, some of you, and thank God for you, really feel drawn with conviction toward various points of a person's life, and we need and want for you to be passionate advocates around education and policy to help others of us understand what the issues are. For myself, I'm drawn toward end-of-life issues. That's probably a reflection of my advanced age. And for the last several years, I've been engaged with Washington County Hospice and Palliative Care, a nonprofit organization, to assist them in their growth and development because end-of-life issues are very important for me. When I and my sisters made decisions about when my parents in their 90s should have medical care withdrawn to allow them to die, I care about end-of-life issues and what God thinks about that in sanctity of life. 
No. So what I've just hopefully described for you by a couple of illustrations is a path that I'm on, and you've already agreed with me. I hope that you're not going to try to mess with me and try to fix me, but here's the point. It's really tough for us in our political environment to know what it is to be an act Christian. Let me summarize this way. You'll never go wrong. We'll never go wrong following this path. Whatever splashes in our face, pray, thank, think, and then do. Whatever we do, pray for leaders first in worship to God and thank him for his intervention. You'd better have convictions. Whatever's not a faith is sin. And those convictions, in my opinion, should come out of being reasonably, if not well-informed. Be a student. I can't listen or watch news, so those aren't mediums that are effective for me. But I can read news. That's a helpful medium for me. But the point is, I intend and try to be well-informed. I'll never have enough information to satisfy my preference, but I want to be a sincere, thoughtful, and informed person. And I want to come to an election booth, I guess it's at my dining room table filling out my form to send, with some really deep convictions about the issues I vote on and the candidates that I select from among. And I want, on the day after election, to feel all of what I will feel as a human, the joy about the things that the majority of people got right, (laughs) strong faith person, and I will deal the sense of loss and maybe even deeper emotions of irritation, if not anger, about things that my vote didn't seem to carry the day on. I want to be fully human in this. And through all of that process, I want to act Christian. My friend Daniel said it this way, as he and I were both beginning to be a little irritated by our friends who were at the microphones pontificating with a little bit less than fine Christian charity. And Daniel looked at me and said, do you think we should tell them that it's okay to act Christian? And I hope at the end of this season that you can say about me, I hope that you can say about your friends, I hope... We can generally say about us as a community, we really acted Christian through that thing. We prayed, we thanked, we thought, we did. We came to conclusions, we advocated, we supported, we went public in ways that were humble and gentle and patient. And we fought hard every day to maintain the unity of the Spirit until we reach the unity of the faith, and God only knows the unity of the faith may be a long ways off.